everyone. Today I am with Charles Maxwood, of the host of devchat.tv, um, which reaches about 70,000 developers every week. So it's very popular, and among the more popular podcasts are Ruby Rogues and JavaScript, um, Jabber. JavaScript Jabber. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are how many how many listeners do you have on each of those? So JavaScript Jabber gets about 20 to 22,000 downloads every week. Okay. Wow. Um, Ruby Rogues is uh, five to six thousand. Very cool. Adventures in Angular is about the same, and then you know we have various other shows that are much smaller than that. But very yeah. cool. So you attract a pretty technical crowd. Yeah. And today I want to steer a little bit away from the technicalities, but um, want to hear a bit about your journey. So can you tell me how you got into podcast development and now how you've built up your popularity for all those shows? Well, it was uh, it was kind of an accident actually. So um, it was like two thousand. Seven-ish, um, I was listening to podcasts. I had a coworker get me into podcasts, and um, I reached out to one of the podcasters I was listening to and mm -hmm. said, "Hey, podcasting seems cool. I should, you know, I think I want to start one." And you know, I thought he was going to get well. I didn't think he'd get back to me. And then if he did, I thought he'd get back to me and say, "Well, you need to do all these things right," because I kind of envisioned this like major production. And he's like, oh, you totally should. You know, you just need a nice mic and you can record to your computer. And yeah, so it was really, really easy to kind of get rolling. And that's more or less how I got started. Um, so it was a side thing in addition to a regular full-time full -time job. job. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so I was working QA for a company called Mosey. They okay. do online backups. And uh, I, I was really into software development. So I started talking about Ruby on Rails. And yeah, then a friend of mine was running a screencast series, and he got into Groovy and Groovy on Grails. I've never heard of Groovy before. So Groovy is a programming language that runs on the Java virtual machine. Okay. And it has a lot of features that are somewhat similar to Ruby. Okay. And um, but yeah, at the time, the Java virtual machine had a lot of performance characteristics and things like that that really paid off. For people to use, and if you had a Java infrastructure, it was a very natural fit. Okay. Um, and so he got way into that. But the people who were watching his screencast still wanted to see Ruby content. So okay. I picked that show up. I ran it for two years and just you know recorded a ten or fifteen minute video every week. Yeah. And just hey, here's how you do this in Rails. Here's how you do this other thing in Rails. Um, at the same time, I was interviewing people for my podcast, and yeah, that all kind of started a Peter out once I went freelance in uh, 2010. Okay. So uh, I think I released my last episode of that particular podcast in January or February of 2011. Um, but I was still kind of hit or miss at that point. I went freelance in September of 2010. I got laid off. Okay. And I told my wife I wanted to go freelance and she wasn't convinced. Yeah. Well, so, there's a lot at stake. Yeah. We, we made a deal. So I had I had gotten a bonus because we did what we affectionately call a death march <laughs> in the in the programming community where basically what it is is you work insane hours for a period of time to get a bunch of work done. So we had done that and then they had um, given us a bonus. So I had the bonus and then I had a couple weeks severance and so I just told her when the money runs out I'll take whatever job offers I got. So. And then work picked up before that point or did you have to go back and... Nope, I, I kept making rent, so <laughs> so to speak, so yeah. And here uh, you are. Yep. So yeah, I, I have missed mortgage payments being freelance, but 
uh, not for a while, and um, it was mostly just because I wasn't out there finding new customers. It's not that they're hard to find, but it does take, there's a sales cycle and it takes a little bit of time. So. And so by customers, you're referring to sponsors for the podcast? Or? No, in this case, I'm talking about um, freelance clients. Okay. So people who would pay me to write software for, for them. I see. Right. Um, I've been full-time on the podcast for about three years, um, but before that, my primary income was building software for other people. Okay. Very cool. So you've told me in the last few days as we've had the opportunity to chat that you really think podcasts are actually before their heyday and that they're going to become more popular. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more? So we're kind of seeing this already with social media, right? Um, I think I heard a clip of somebody who was essentially crying on social media because she lost her following and she basically said, I'm not anything without my following. Mm. And we we see people more and more and more becoming their own publisher, right? So you see these, it, it's kind of crazy just what people consume and what people put out there that makes it work. Mm -hmm. But uh, you, we have Instagram models now, right? And so they don't belong to a modeling agency. They're just attractive young people who go and take pictures of themselves and then they make their money by essentially you know, they find sponsors who want them to wear their clothing or use their makeup or uh, things like that. And so they're their own publishing channel. Mm -hmm. And podcasts are very much the same way. They're their own publishing channel. The difference is, is that with podcasts, they're usually primarily focused on audio. Mm -hmm. And that means that they're mostly informational or entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, the vast majority of podcasts out there are informational. And so what that means is that I can cater to a smaller audience because before, in order to go on the radio, you had to have general appeal, right? Mm -hmm. You had to be able to do a show that a lot of people in a particular area would want to hear about. So usually it was news or variety shows or things like that where people would come on, they would do the entertainment, they'd tell you about the traffic, you know, and so you had a reason to listen. But now... Um, with the internet, I can find these people all over the world and I can create a channel that reaches 1,000 or 2,000 people that are really interested in my topic yeah. and I can publish that way. And so more and more industries are going to find their way into media like this. Now, some of it's going to need to be visual because it's, it's just the nature of uh, that particular topic. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them are going to go to audio and audio is one of those things that you can consume anywhere, right? You're mowing the lawn, yeah. you put your headphones on, you're driving, you know. Yeah, it's a bit more yeah. of an appeal for multitaskers right. and so on. So it's, as you're talking about this, it's making me think about um, kind of the history of telecom and mm -hmm. the history of just cable channels going from, they used to be like these local interest group things mm -hmm. where, you know, this television station was only appealing to hundred mile radius and then as that expanded and you had these cables that were capable of carrying information much further mm -hmm. you started to see bundling models come together right. where it was like okay well we're going to offer 300 channels and mm -hmm. maybe each household only really cares about one or two but right. we can mark it up and price it in such a way that we're appealing to a large crowd even though it's filled with a bunch mm -hmm. of niche interests do you think that that could happen with podcasts or will it kind of remain debundled, so to speak? Yes and no. I mean, 
you know, we run a podcast network, right? And so we reach mm -hmm. software developers and there are a handful of people that listen to all of our shows, even mm -hmm. though we're talking about a lot of different things. Most people will listen to the one or two that are in there, in whatever lane they work in, right? So we get people who um, are into JavaScript, but maybe they're writing mobile apps with React Native, so they'll listen to the JavaScript show, the React show, and the React Native show, mm -hmm. right? But they don't care about the other shows. Mm -hmm. And then you have, um, so, so you kind of get that kind of bundling, but if, if you look at the TV industry and the, you know, these other industries, you kind of have the opposite effect. So with radio in particular, um, there are personalities, um, a lot of people, depending on where you stand politically, have feelings about talk radio, but talk radio is syndicated. So, um, you know, if it's the Dave Ramsey show or the Glenn Beck show or the um, Rush Limbaugh show, right? Um, they transmit it and then their syndicates pick it up. So they transmit it over the inter internet and then the syndicates pick it up and play it hmm. whenever they play it, right? And so it's a syndicated model and that's actually very similar to podcasts. The difference is, is that it goes up on an antenna and comes out to everybody. Um, but if you look at the TV especially, where they've pulled together these bundles of channels mm -hmm. and said you can buy these bundles of channels, people are moving away from that where now um, for example, um, my wife and I, we were looking at our TV bill and realized that we were paying quite a bit of money to have a cable subscription yeah. that gave us the, the channels that we wanted. And yeah, we probably watched 10 or 15 channels out of those channels. Well, now we've signed up for Sling TV, which has a bunch of these channels on it, has a bunch of channels that we, we still don't watch. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I signed up for the sports package so I can watch soccer. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, I, I, I watch half of my soccer on the Fox app, Fox mm -hmm. Now app. Um, she watches the bunch of shows that she likes. Most of them are on CBS, so she pays for CBS All Access. Mm -hmm. And then we pay for Hulu and Netflix. And so our total TV bill, so to speak, is, what, 60 bucks a month for all of these for, for everything that we want instead of 150 bucks for the full package. Is that what cable typically is or I don't even know, satellite TV? <laughs> I haven't had any kind of a, a television service in, it really I've depends. never paid for one. <laughs> it really depends, but um, okay. and we also have an antenna on our house and that's free, right? Yeah. Well, the antenna wasn't free, but the service is. Right, right. So, you know, we're seeing more and more people that are, well, I just want Game of Thrones, so I'll go pay for HBO now. Right, they're cutting the cord, I think is mm -hmm. what it's called, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, but my mom, for example, she pays for a Comcast TV subscription into her house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but that's, I think that model is moving further and further away. Uh, my kids, they spend half of their time watching, I guess, traditional TV. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so they watch like MasterChef on the Fox app and things like that. And that's more traditional TV. And then they spend the other half of the time watching Studio C, which is a comedy program from Brigham Young University. Yeah. They watch that on YouTube. And so half of the content they consume is YouTube. And, you know, again, that, that kind of uh, universally available media that people can consume is becoming more and more the norm, um, especially with, with younger people, with, yeah. with you know, ki people my kids' age and in high school. My, my kids range from 13 to 3. You know, but but yeah, kids in high school, you know, they might have one or two favorite TV shows that they actually watch on TV in one way or another. But even then, they've DVR'd it so that they can consume it on demand. Yeah. And and so we're moving more and more toward this convenience model where people only care about being able to get the things that they want. 
And so if they can find a more effective way to get it, they're going to. And that's the model that podcasts operate on, where you subscribe just to the channels that you care about. Mm-hmm. Um, you get an update whenever they update the RSS feed. Yeah. And then your device, so my phone, it automatically downloads the, the new episodes. And then I just listen to it when I'm driving around or taking my kids yeah. to school or, you know. So it seems like podcasts and just media at large, as you're pointing out with all these different streaming services, is starting to decentralized. Yes. But it also seems like telecom has a lot of pressure where they're trying to snap up content creators and media creators yeah. to to re-centralize. Mm-hmm. Um, One example of this is Spotify. Okay. So Spotify is a service where you can go listen to music for free. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've used it. No, I haven't. So you can go in and you can essentially say, I like these artists. I like, you know, and you can add stuff to your playlist. You can listen to it for free or you can pay and you know, it, mm-hmm. then it, the ads go away and things like that. But they recently bought a company called Gimlet Media. And uh, I don't know if you've listened to much NPR. This American Life is a program on NPR. Mm-hmm. They spun, spun off another program called um, Money, what is it? This American Life is like one of the biggest podcasts out there, right? I mean, this American Life is a radio program, but they also release it as a podcast. Okay. And then they, they release Planet Money which never actually got syndicated to radio, right? So it was strictly a podcast, okay. but it was run by the same team. Um, one of the people involved in that, Alex Bloomberg, went off on his own and created Gimlet Media, and so he started, his first podcast was about him starting up his startup, okay. right? So it was called Startup, I think. But uh, anyway, so they've created a whole bunch of shows, and it's very much in the vein of This American Life where they're telling stories and they're creating media for this. Spotify bought them for... I don't even know how much money. It was an obscene amount of money. And so, yeah, you know, in the same way that you see Netflix and Hulu creating original content, Spotify is getting into that game now. And so you're seeing a lot more of, yeah, these, these media companies now looking for a new way to gather attention. The other thing that you're seeing is companies like, um, so Glenn Beck, I know people, you know, he's a political figure and people like him or don't like him, but what he's doing is really interesting in that um, his, they, they have a Blaze TV, like TV channel that you can get on cable, mm-hmm. but their primary distribution is on the internet. And so you can get their shows as podcasts. You can subscribe and watch their television shows mm-hmm. online. And a lot of people do that. And so they pay a $10 a month subscription. And so the, anyway, you're, you're seeing a lot of media move that direction. And some of them are acquiring the Blaze just... Um, just merged with CRTV, which is the conservative review TV arm. Mm-hmm. And so now it's all the blaze. And so you're seeing a lot of this movement where, yeah, there is consolidation, but it also. Yeah. So is it, I mean, where do you think that equilibrium will fall between having sort of decentralized podcasts versus, um, you know, podcasts that start to get snapped up by bigger media companies and distributed in kind of closed behind closed doors? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by distributed behind closed doors. Well, I guess I mean, like, if you want to, um, you know, see a show on HBO, you have to pay for their subscription. And I assume that if podcasts start to be snapped up by larger media companies, it's going to be the same way. Like, if you want to access this podcast, you need to be a part of our network, right? Yes, but the internet changes the equation on that quite a bit. 
where um, with TV, you essentially had to have a cable into your house and then you paid somebody to push content across it. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, with the internet, you can find content on most of the things that you want. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing more and more uh, this kind of media being free, changing the equation on a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So what traditionally people would pay to get access to, now they're getting for free. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to see more and more that this kind of information and this kind of media is just going to become a commodity. And, you know, so as there's more and more free content out there that's, you know, good enough for me to consume, mm -hmm. you know, I may pay for one or two of these bigger, you know, conglomerates, so to speak, mm -hmm. to get their content. But for the most part, um, if, if it's free and convenient, I'll just sign up for it. And so... As yeah, as the market grows in this in this free media era, mm -hmm. and this is why you know coming back to your original question, why do you think podcasting is going to grow to the you know it hasn't hit its heyday yet, you know it hasn't yeah. peaked, and and this is the reason is because eventually the the cost of producing it is going to continue to drop. I mean, right now it's. You, you kind of have to know the steps to start a podcast, but you can start a podcast for reasonably inexpensive. Mm -hmm. You just have to have a microphone and a computer. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to set up a website. You have to get artwork done. You know, to, to get listed on iTunes, you have to have an RSS feed with all of that stuff in it. But other than that, I mean, you're, you're basically there. Then you just have to record. Mm -hmm. and, and that's usually where things fall apart for people is, you know, they get all their initial work done and then they realize that they, it takes time to record and edit a podcast. Um, but I think a lot of that's going to get easier. Uh, there's a company out there or a product out there called Alphonic. And so you mm -hmm. take your audio file, you drop it into Alphonic, and it levels the audio. It does noise reduction. I mean, it does all kinds of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the editing all of a sudden becomes easy. Then you just have to take the stuff out that you didn't want to have in there in the first place. Yeah. And a lot of these other things are just going to become easier and easier and easier. There are systems for recording podcasts on the Internet, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't even have to install software on your computer if you don't want to. Yeah. Um, you can go straight to YouTube and then you can download the files off of YouTube and pull the audio off of them. You have a podcast. And so um, I, I think we're going to see more and more of this kind of um, general availability for people to produce. And because of that, then people are going to have a general availability to go find the things they're interested in for free. Yeah. And so then information becomes this commodity where you're playing the game of capturing attention and then finding ways to monetize it. Mm -hmm. And eventually we'll get to the point where um, you're going to be capturing attention and that's essentially its own form of monetization in, in some ways because um, we're seeing already that gap start to close where if you have enough attention, people will advertise or sponsor or things like that and you don't even have to go out and find them in a lot of cases anymore. Mm -hmm. So with my podcast, we've been around long enough to where about half of the sponsors that I line up Mm -hmm. came to me and asked if they could sponsor my content. And so yeah. I get on a phone call with them and, you know, half hour later I have a sponsor and I'm charging them thousands of dollars to put content into mm -hmm. my content. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I can just see that gap closing to the point where a sponsor doesn't even have to get on the phone with me anymore. They just say, hey, you have attention from the people that we want attention from. Yeah. Here's money. Here's all you need. And then it just yeah. kind of goes forward automatically. Do you think that um, podcasts in the future will be, like, long-term monetization models will be through sponsorships and advertisements? 
that's hard to say. Um, I mean, those kinds of advertisements have existed as long as there's been media. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't know that that model goes away, but it's, you know, there will probably be something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it may not take the, the form that we traditionally see where you, you know, you get a media contract and things yeah. like that. Or in my case, I send them an invoice, they send me money and I put them in the show. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see. The technology changes the game here a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it, it'll probably change it quite a bit more as we go along because the deliverability and the availability of a lot of this stuff is, um, it, it, you know, it's immediate. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But the other thing is, is that um, I also see information as the sort of marketing model that people just go with in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of um, buying the attention that I have, they go create content that generates attention on their own. Right. And we're seeing some more companies do that. Um, one company that, so I've been listening to their podcast for a while, they actually do a podcast for podcasters, right? And they're, they're selling a podcasting platform where um, you can upload your files and they create your RSS feed and they, you know, they do a lot of the work for getting your podcast out there uh, called Buzzsprout. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're starting a podcast, that's actually where I recommend people go to for, for their stuff. But um, at least until I build my own product. And yeah, I was we, we've ask talked you about, about that, that but, next. But um, anyway, so yeah, so they're, they're putting out content for podcasters. And so then they're garnering their own level of attention to bring them back into, okay, well, maybe I want to start a podcast like the person you just interviewed. And so then, you know, they, they go check out Buzzsprout and sign up. Yeah. And uh, I have another friend um, named Joe. He's, he's on some of our shows at devchat.tv. He's, he's a friend of mine. He lives pretty close to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he acquired a company called Thinkster, thinkster.io. And they had a whole bunch of content that was actually some kind of old. Um, but it was courses on how to do programming stuff, mm -hmm. right? And um, he has an approach that he likes. I happen to like it too. And so he was, he basically came to me and said, look, I, I want to, I want to do the marketing, but a lot of the traditional marketing, you know, it's, it's a niche market. It's just hard to do. Yeah. So you can go with Facebook marketing where you can target particular groups of people. But beyond that, he wanted to put together a podcast. And so he's putting together content for developers talking mm -hmm. about education with the hope that they'll come get educated at thinkster.io. And so that's becoming more and more of a channel where instead of spending your marketing dollars on channels that exist out there, you go create your own channel mm -hmm. and you pay somebody to manage your own channel. Yeah. And I can see that, um, again, you know, it, it, marketing is attention. And as more and more people uh, spend time and attention on the internet, and as it gets easier and easier, you know, I mean, um, my phone is kind of my primary vehicle for getting on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when I'm working, I'm on my laptop too, you know, but yeah, um, that's my primary vehicle for consuming stuff off of the internet. And so, you know, what happens when it's in my glasses or what happens when it's, you know, in a contact lens in my eye or, you know, um, they figure out how to plug it into my brain, right? So I can essentially consume it with, you know, without the friction of pulling it out of my pocket, opening it up, unlocking my phone yeah. and opening the app. You know, 
then then this level of attention becomes a, a different thing. And so then when you're marketing, you're essentially marketing for people to grant you access. Yeah. And and then it just it just is delivered. And so um, when we get to that point, this kind of content marketing is going to make a lot more sense than paying to be marketed in somebody else's channel. Right. Right. So I want to backtrack a little bit and hear a shameless plug for you about um, PodWrench. Mm-hmm. And um, first of all, just what is it? So um, a little bit of the story there. So we, we run a podcast network. Uh, we have about a dozen active shows on the network. We have a few mm-hmm. others that are either in the process of being started or have since discontinued. But um, uh, most of the tools out there are focused around one podcast, right? Mm -hmm. And they also tend to focus on one particular aspect of podcasting. So what you wind up doing is you wind up going and signing up for uh, Libsyn or Blueberry or Buzzsprout to manage your RSS feed and your media. Mm -hmm. And then you go sign up for WordPress.com and you host your website there. And then you go sign up for this other thing, and then you have to schedule podcast guests, and so you're, you're using Calendly. Or... Anyway, <clears throat> the problem is is that if you want a cohesive process, then all of these systems have to talk to each other. Right. And they don't. Right. And the other issue is, is that if you're running a series of shows, like I am, then, then this problem is compounded for every show you add into the mix, right? Mm-hmm. And so the way we have things cobbled together now is um, you use HubSpot to schedule the episode. HubSpot does automatically connect to Google Calendar, so it creates it there, creates it on Google Calendar, and then I have to use a system called Zapier, zapier.com, uh, to actually watch my Google Calendar and see if there's an, there's a, uh, an appointment scheduled and then it filters that to make sure it's the right show. And then it goes through and it says, okay, well, we want the guest to be able to prep for the show. So it goes and creates a Google Doc, right? And then, and you can see where I'm going with this, yeah. right? And so there are all these places where it can go wrong. And yeah. the, other, the other thing is, is that um, most podcasts stop producing because they either don't have a system for finding sponsors or they don't have a system to manage the production. And so when either of those become overwhelming, they quit, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. But um, we have a system that works. And so um, I started building, because I'm a programmer, <laughs> I started building a system that automates all these steps and put them all in one system so that you know people can come in and just do the whole kit and caboodle. The other thing is, is that nobody offers any solutions for managing sponsors. And so I was running into all these issues where I had to go manually update WordPress to manage all of my sponsors. And that was a pain. And then I have to remember to go and renew with them, which has gotten me in financial trouble a couple of times because it's like, oh, wait, we got to renew, right? And then mm-hmm. it takes them a week or two to send me a check or, you know, they pay with their credit card. And so it has to process through the credit card company and then process through whatever yeah. payment system I have before I get the money. Yeah. And so... It, what, what I'm pulling together and ultimately what I'm, I'm building is, is a system where um, whether you have guests or not, I'm building all the guest management stuff in because I need it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you can come in, you can say, I want to start a podcast and it'll just walk you through. Okay, get some artwork, here's how. 
um, you know, here's, here's how you submit to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all the places you need to be. Um, and then, you know, here's, how, here's a scheduling, a content scheduling tool, which also I haven't been able to find anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, here's the social media tools yeah. and here's the sponsorship tools. And so everything kind of happens in one place. Um, yeah. It'll track the traffic and it'll automatically let your sponsors know how much exposure they got and all of these things that a lot of people want but nobody can find. And then it's all in one place. So I don't have to go cobble this together with six different right. systems and then have hope that Zapier has connections to all the systems that I'm trying to use. And so this system that you're building is called PodWrench. Mm-hmm. And how far along are you in building it? So... Funny enough, I, I started and I started putting together the content piece, right? Uh-huh. And then um, as my company has grown, and we, we can talk about that if you're interested, but um, basically over the last probably six months or so, um, I've hired out a team. And so my focus was less on the content. And now my primary role, besides being a host on some of the shows, mm-hmm. is finding the sponsorships and then making sure that the systems for all of these other pieces, for, for all the other people involved, work. Okay. And so I'm kind of doing operations and sales. Yeah. And so, yeah, it pretty quickly veered into me building more features into the sales piece. Okay. Because that's what I was working on. So the sponsorship, sales, and delivery piece is more or less done. Um, or at least at a minimum viable product, which is a startup term that yeah. people might recognize, um, especially from Lean Startup. That's a term that they kind of coined. But um, yeah, the, the content piece is getting there. And I hired another developer to help me build it. Um, and, and I love the freaking internet. He was a listener to the show from Malaysia. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I'm paying him extremely well for where he's at. And I'm getting a deal compared to what I would pay somebody here, but he does right. a terrific job. Um, and that's just a side note. I, I see the whole workforce moving in that direction, yeah. where we have a global workforce. A lot of people talk about globalization and no borders and things like that. This is a completely different thing, and it's just the nature of, I can yeah. get the stuff done that I need, yeah. you know, in different mm-hmm. parts of the world. But anyway, so, so yeah, so PodWrench is essentially this tool that just handles the whole process for you. Yeah. And... Eventually, where I see it going is, first of all, people are still terrible at doing sales. They don't want to do the sales. They don't want to do the marketing. Um, And so I'll let them opt into our sponsorship system. And then the difference between us as a sponsorship agency versus other people is that a lot of these sponsorship agencies have a directory. They go sell people on coming to look in the directory. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, they're like, yeah, I want four of those and six of those. And then, you know, they never come back. Or, you know, there's a communication issue between the sponsor and the, the content producer. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm looking to do is actually have um, account managers that go in, work with the marketing departments from these companies, help them figure out who they need to reach, make sure that they are consistently working yeah. with the right podcast. But the other thing is, is they don't want to talk to a podcaster that only has 500 listeners because... It's an ad buy that's so small that it doesn't move the needle for them. They don't get any credit for adding 500 people that they reach. They get credit for adding 10,000 people that they reach, right? Right. And so if we can put a bunch of these together and say, look, you'll get, you know, 10,000 listeners across 20 shows, Mm. 
then it becomes a different conversation. Yes, I'll buy that. that bundling. Yeah, exactly. But but <laughs> okay. it's it's in the marketing area. On the marketing side, yeah. And it 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 moves the needle for them in may, ways that are meaningful to them. Right. But then these content producers, you know, maybe we're helping them pay a car payment or yeah. you know take their kids on a trip every year or something like that. So are you building this more out of just desperation and necessity for yourself? That's or, how it started. Or out of okay, that's how it started, and now it sounds like you're moving more towards picks and shovels in the gold rush kind of maneuver of like you're thinking podcasts are going to become more popular and take mm -hmm. off. And since you're running a bunch of successful podcasts all under one roof, you've seen what a headache exists yeah. and hasn't been met yet. Yeah. The other thing is that I really deeply believe in podcasting, mm -hmm. right? It's not just a means to an end. It's not a way to get popular. Initially, we were doing it just because we wanted to talk about programming. And then we figured out that it makes a difference to people, right? That, that this content's out there. Um, one example, um, it was actually here in San Francisco. Uh, we came out for Microsoft Build. It, I think it was the first year we did it. Mm -hmm. um, and initially, they invited the iOS show that we produce, iFreaks. Mm -hmm. And then um, they said, go ahead and bring JavaScript Jabber as well. And I was a host on both shows, so that made sense. Uh, they just flew one of our other um, hosts from JavaScript Jabber, AJ, who you guys know, um, yeah. out with us as well. So we had this meetup, and we were like, you know, we put it out there to our listeners, and we're like, hey, we're going to meet at this place, and we're going to, um, you know, you can come and hang out with us. And we had like three people show up. Mm -hmm. But one guy that came, he was, he was a programmer at that point. He'd been in programming for about a year, year and a half. But the interesting thing with him was that he had been a construction worker before that and had started teaching himself JavaScript. And then he started listening to JavaScript Jabber. And what he told us was that um, he went and he basically listened to all of the JavaScript Jabber episodes that existed at the time, was, which was like 200. Wow. Right? Um, we just recorded episode 350 a month or two ago for that show. But uh, yeah, there were like 200 episodes. He went and listened to all of them. And then when he went in for the, the interview for that job, he's like, he's like, I knew all the answers because I'd been listening to you guys. And then he, he started to get emotional because he was able to move into a nicer neighborhood. Hmm. Um, he was able, you know, because he, he basically went from making $20,000 a year to $60,000 a year. Yeah. So he was able to move into a nicer neighborhood. He was able to put his kids in better schools. And he just basically was telling us that we had changed his life, right? Yeah, that's and, really neat. And it's, it's that kind of thing where it's like, okay, you know, podcasting can make a difference. And with these kind of mass appeal shows, they get people on and they'll have people talk about the issues that they care about. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's these niche areas where you're going to make the biggest impact. Yeah. And the, the mass appeal shows just can't do that for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with us having that smaller focus, it allows us to really hit home where things really matter. Yeah. And so what I want is I want with PodWrench to make it so that, I mean, I'm going to charge for it, right? You know, I'm not, I'm not this uh, pie-in-the-sky kind of person where it's like, I'll just make it free and then everything will be great because, you know, it costs money to run the, the service. Yeah. But the other end of it is is that if I can help more podcasts be more um, available. available, stable, you know, where they can stick around and they can do the things that they're doing for people that matter, um, 
then I think, I think we're better off. We're better off because we have more people talking about the issues that matter to more communities. And so I want to create this tool that essentially takes that headache away. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our offerings are going to go from here's a tool that helps you manage the process to um, why don't you sign up for us to manage the process, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll find you a designer to make your artwork. We'll find editors to edit your shows. So all you have to do is record and then make sure that we can find the audio file. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah. So then, these communities that aren't being served because it's hard to be a content creator, you know, at a scale at scale that you need to, and at the same time, you're only reaching a small niche audience. Yeah, if we can take the headache away out of that, then, you know, that that's that. I mean, that that hits me right where I care, right where I live. But the flip side of that is is that as more and more of these companies also start building their marketing engines based on content, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about that a minute ago, I think we're primed to really make a difference there. And so mm-hmm. then the companies that really have something to offer the communities that they serve, mm-hmm. um, we're helping them profit. And at the same time, um, you know, we're profiting by helping them produce the content. And it has that same net effect in a lot of ways because they're still putting out great content that helps people that's free even if, you know, only a small percentage actually convert to paying customers. And so it's a win for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I'm trying to build with this. Yeah. I just want to get rich in the process. <laughs> well, there you go. So what are some of the more meaningful things you've seen come out of podcasting and where are you going with it in the future? You'd mentioned somebody saying that it helps their livelihood improve, Mm -hmm. but what else? Um, So personally, I've just grown a lot. I mean, you, if you do a podcast where you're bringing other people in, I mean, there are different styles, right? So Mm -hmm. some of the podcasts, it's, hey, folks, I'm back, and I'm just t- going to talk to the microphone for 10 minutes. And then, the, you know, the next week they do the same thing. So, they, you know, when they go out into the world, they kind of connect with people, but on the show they really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, our shows, uh, most of them are panel-based, right? So we have four or five people that are regulars on the show every week, mm-hmm. and then we'll bring a guest in who's a subject matter expert, and then we'll just have a discussion about whatever they're an expert in. So a lot of times it's a programming tool, or a programming library or things like that. And so, you know, we'll talk about, okay, so, you know, you've got this database system, well, it's highly concurrent, or, you know, hey, you've got this programming library and, Mm -hmm. you know, it helps people build apps in this way, you know, and so, you know, we, then we talk about the principles behind it and why it matters and why it works the way it works and things like that, um, which just helps people. But the other thing is, is that in, in all of those cases, um, it just, makes you think through why things are the way they are and um, in particular so I started Ruby Rogues about eight months after I went Mm -hmm. full-time freelancing Mm -hmm. and so it benefited me in the sense that I was talking to programmers that were much more advanced than I was every week and so I benefited from that just in the sense that every week I was having conversations that made me grow yeah um, and, and a lot of people have experienced that listening as well, right? Where, oh, well, I hadn't thought about that until so-and-so said such and such a thing. And, yeah. Um, I mean, we've... It's kind it, of neat. You've got like a history that you can look back on and see mm-hmm. how your own knowledge base has grown yeah. over time. 
That's neat. Yeah. The other thing that I've seen is that um, sometimes we've, and I've seen this with Ruby Rogues and to a lesser extent JavaScript Jabber. Um, Ruby Rogues we kind of hit when the Ruby community was figuring a lot of things out. Mm. Uh, the JavaScript community moves a little bit differently in that JavaScript was well established in a lot of ways. And so now we're seeing a lot of things move forward, but it's different because there's, there's a lot of established knowledge there. Mm -hmm. um, with with Ruby, when we started out, it was still scrappy, and a lot of people were, you know, kind of staking out turf and figuring out how to make things work in that particular area. And so, what we saw was that we would do episodes where we talked about a particular programming principle or a programming idea, mm -hmm. and then the community would pick it up, and so it would become a community movement for six months after we did the episode. Yeah. And so we, you know, we were able to essentially. That's inspire cool. people to improve the community that way. That's really neat. So how do you choose the topics for each new podcast that you're going to create? Um, and how do you choose panels? Like, what's the process, the thinking process for that? So choosing topics, I get asked this a lot. Um, we've done it a lot of different ways. Um, we've gone and looked at like newsletters and Reddit and places where essentially you have a curated list of hot topics mm -hmm. and we've, you know, we've invited people that have blog posts that go viral for each episode. Yeah. For an okay. episode. And that, that tends to work, but sometimes it's tricky because sometimes they're, they're good at writing a blog post and not really good talking about it. Okay. Or sometimes, you know, for whatever reason, it just doesn't work or the whole conversation was had in the blog post and so it's a 15 minute conversation about that topic and then another 20 minutes where we're just talking about other, other stuff. Okay. Um, we, what we've switched to recently is um, we just compile a list of like everything that we think we might want to talk about and so um, yeah, so I sat down the last time and I just, you know, made the list. I also have forms on the website where people can say, I'd like to see an episode on this topic. And then um, I have all the panelists go in and rank them one to five. Yeah. And then I slap AJ's hand when he ranks something to six. Um, but uh, anyway, so because on JavaScript, Debra, he did that twice and I'm like, no, five, right? <laughs> I get you want it, but five. Um, but yeah, so then, then uh, my team just goes and says, okay, these are the top ones, and then they go find qualified people to come talk to them. Or in a couple of cases, like um, I was looking at uh, Node Basics, and Node is a JavaScript system that runs on um, servers. JavaScript traditionally runs in the browser. Mm. And so this runs it on the server, and uh, I was like, well, a lot of people are doing things with Node.js, so let's... Let's do a Node.js Basics episode, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just went and talked to Michael Rogers, who for a long time maintained Node.js. And uh, last time I talked to him, he was running the Node Foundation. So, you know, it's like, hey, do you want to come talk about Node? I mean, you know, he's, he's so deep into Node that, you know, Node Basics is probably not the most interesting thing he could talk about. But he's also, in a lot of ways, the most qualified person to talk about it. And so, you know, so we get somebody on the show who you know has what it takes to really go into it but then we know we're covering a topic that people want to hear mm -hmm. and so there's a certain blend of like timeliness you know so if there's yeah. a big announcement you know I think last year we did um, Node.js bumped their major version and NPM which is the package manager mm -hmm. that you use to install libraries to JavaScript or mm -hmm. to Node.js 
um, they bumped their major version and released a whole bunch of features, right? And so we had each of those teams come on and talk about what was new. And that's very timely. It's not necessarily like deep tech, you know. Yeah. You got to know how to do all these things in order to be successful. But it gave people a way of kind of passively listening and picking up on what was new. And then, yeah, other times we're talking about, you know, basic stuff where it's, okay, newer people can kind of, you know, get a foundation. And other times it's, okay, we're going to go deep in the weeds and we're going to talk about encryption with, you know, whatever. And so we're talking encryption algorithms and deep math and, you know, we melt people's brains and that's just the way that it goes. So it's kind of a little bit of a juggling act, but the more that I find that I talk to the community, the more I find that I can identify what they yeah. need or want to hear. What about like podcasts as a whole, like a show topic? How do you decide? So you have, you said probably a dozen sh- shows now mm-hmm. and you've op- you've started each of those gradually is my understanding. So how do you... Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. How many did you start with? One. So we started Ruby Rogues in May of 2011. Okay. And then... Um, Jameson Dance, who's a developer in Utah, um, was listening to Ruby Rogues, and he said, I want a show like Ruby Rogues in JavaScript, and so I was trying to help him start it, and eventually I just looked at him and said, do you want me to just do this? Because he was trying to Mm. juggle his full-time job. I was still freelancing, so I had a little bit more freedom to kind of pursue it, and that I had already done it. And so we started JavaScript Jabber, and then we started Freelancer Show. Those both started about the same time, about seven years ago. And then... um, iFreak started a year or so after that because I wanted to learn iOS development. Mm-hmm. I never did, but I was on that show for like four years. And then um, a, a couple of other guys came to me and said they wanted to start an Angular show, and I told them no a couple of times and then finally did that. That turned out to be a really, really good move. Um, <laughs> and we kind of ran with those five shows for a year or two. And so, yeah, that was all gradual. And then um, I was talking to people in my community and got a lot of requests for Elixir and React as shows. And so last year, about this time, I started three shows. Okay. And so um, it was Elixir, React, and Vue, which is another JavaScript framework for writing web applications. Okay. And now I'm working on pulling together uh, new shows. My goal is to start six new shows within the next three months. Wow. Wow. And so we're working on one on open source sustainability. Mm. We're starting one on data science. Okay. So that's taking large data sets and you know, extracting useful information out of them. Right. Um, and developer leaders. So that's CTOs, um, team leads, mm. stuff like that. So we'll be talking probably a lot more about how to manage people and processes than we will be about code. Code. Yeah. Um, and then the other shows that I want to start are on artificial intelligence and machine learning. Just because we're seeing a lot of growth there, um, I don't know what it is that's going to make it go mainstream, mm-hmm. but I think at some point something's going to make it easier than it is now to the point where everybody's just going to go, oh, I can do that, and then it's going to take off. Um, IoT, which is Internet of Things, so that's everything from like an Amazon Echo Mm-hmm. All the way down to like a sensor that you put in a pill that somebody swallows and, you know, it yeah. gathers data and then, you know. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, you see that and you see that feed into data science. And then all of the data that you collect is can get fed AI. into AI, right? <laughs> yeah. You see where I'm going with this, right? And then the other thing is, is that um, 
virtual reality and augmented reality are kind of a blend between, um, at this point, um, mobile development and IoT is kind of a mix, right? So you have goggles, they're devices that can typically connect to a phone or a computer. Yeah. And, you know, they, they transmit information into your, into your eyes. But the, the thing that's interesting about that is that we saw with things like Google Glass and stuff, you know, people could essentially gather information about their surroundings while they went out and did things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, to, today, I mean, you kind of have augmented reality because you can use your phone to look at things. And in some cases, it can give you information back on what you're looking at. Yeah. And so I, I think there's going to be some breakthrough there where it becomes seamless so that I don't have to pull something out of my pocket, point it at the thing that yep. I want information on. It'll just give me that feedback. And then, you know, can you imagine the escapism that you get from VR? Or, you know, if you need to go experience something, you know, you can go fully immersive and basically follow that pill as somebody swallowed it kind yeah. of thing, right? Or something like that where, you know, you have this virtual experience and you can be completely immersed in whatever it is that you're doing and, and just see, you know, how it is. Yeah. Or you could have visualizations where things are moving around you. I mean, there, yeah. there are so many places where that could go. And it's just going to be a different medium for people to consume. I just I think the VR AR stuff is so cool, but it's not getting traction. So I don't I'm not super confident that it's going to explode anytime soon. I don't know that it's going to explode anytime soon, but I think it will explode eventually. And how long is eventually? Is that are we talking like a couple decades or like a couple like a century from now? So my instincts tell me that, you know, just looking at the, the you know, the, the way that we've kind of, you know, innovated on things like the internet and mm-hmm. smartphones and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, it would probably be 20 years away. But the, the speed with which things um, advance seems to be accelerating. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see it in 10 years. Do you think Zuckerberg is actually going to be successful with it? I know he's been pushing for I don't VR. know. I don't know if it's going to be Oculus Rift, which Facebook owns, Mm -hmm. or if it's going to be something else. Um, I mean, Oculus Rift, the thing that's interesting about that is that um, the guy that invented it, I can't remember his name, it's something lucky, something. Anyway, um, he he basically invented it in a trailer park when he was living with his mom, right? Oculus Rift. And that was a big leap forward for VR. So... That's the other thing that that's becoming more and more interesting in the technology world is that a lot of this stuff is now accessible to regular people, whereas before you needed a big lab and a ton of research in order to pull this technology together, and now some 22-year-old in a trailer park in California can figure this yeah. stuff out, right? Yeah. And so, you know, is it going to be Facebook? Maybe. Is it going to be Apple? Apple's working on a couple of uh, virtual reality-based projects, or at least that's what the rumors are. Is it going to be them? I don't know. I mean, they kind of popularized the smartwatch and a couple of other things that kind of, you know, could link into some of that. But they, you know, who knows? Yeah. I mean, what what do you think are going to be the future use cases of VR and AR that that's, take off? That's the other part that I think has to happen in order for it to take off, right? Is that mm-hmm. um, augmented reality has the issue of um, if it's processing what I'm seeing and then giving me feedback on it, 
then, and, and this was one of the issues with like Google Glass and stuff is that people would wear Google Glass right. on their face and they wouldn't think about it. They're taking a camera into a bathroom or to a private area. Right. And people weren't okay with that. Right. And so I don't know, I don't know if there's a use case where, um, you know, there's a social shift. The other thing is, is I don't know if there's a use case that's just going to blow it out of the water where, um, you know, maybe a certain industry makes a large amount of use of it. So, yeah. um, and, and like you go to the Microsoft events and they have the, um, I can never remember what their VR system is or their AR system is, I don't what know. it's called, but it's a big thing that you put on your head mm-hmm. and it's super cool. And after a while you just get used to having it on your head, but it's this big bulky thing. But yeah, they do the demos where it's, um, and I'm gonna think of the name in a minute, but um, yeah. So you know, they're like, look. So you know, the professor gets up and virtually, you know, has the human body, you know, in front of all the students who are all also, they could be there virtually or in the classroom. But you know, it's nothing but air. But you're essentially seeing a hologram there because you're wearing the device. And then um, it's like, okay, well, you know, if you look at this, you know, and so then the skin melts away and you see the musculature and then, you know, and then it zooms into the the shoulder or the elbow and you, it's just things like that, right? And so yeah. you have, you know, they're, they're trying to make the case, you know, for education and things like that. But um, I don't think that's the killer use case. I don't know what it is. Yeah. And so... It's, it's going to be a blend of that. There is going to be some use case and some level of the technology um, working together yeah. that, that'll make it take off. And I don't know what that is. So you mentioned six different new shows that you're about to start. Of those six, and I mean, that's a, first of all, I'm impressed. That's a lot to chew off in one go, starting that well, many Well, you have to realize that I have a team behind me for a lot of the production stuff. Mm-hmm. And so before I had to work all that out on my own and now I just go to my editors and show notes folks and basically say can you take on another show a week and they all go yeah yeah <laughs> and then my production manager makes it work That's and nice. so so That's my good. essentially I am in the business now of growing the network okay. you know finding the sponsors and I've got I've got the sponsorship system now to the point where most of my sponsorships are full so I don't have to spend as much time doing sales and so I can focus mm-hmm. on essentially raising the profile of the podcast network, working on PodWrench, and then, yeah. Mm-hmm. So of those six, which ones are you most excited for personally? Probably the latter three, which is funny because the... And remind me, that's the VR, a- AR, IoT. IoT. And VR, yeah. VR, okay. Um, and mostly it's because we're kind of at the beginning of those. I mean, some people are going to go, we're not at the beginning fine you know yeah some of these disciplines have been around for a long time but um so was the internet right it was the darpa net forever for 30 40 years and then it was the internet in the 90s because it everybody was using it and i think we're kind of in the same place with a lot of these other technologies but eventually they're going to take off and so it's interesting to watch them develop now and see what companies are managing to do interesting things with them now yeah and um, by interesting things, generally what I mean is is things that regular people can understand and get their head around and actually go and, you know, pick up a little bit of programming and do something with it. Yeah. 
And so anyway, it's, it's really interesting to see that kind of moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. But uh, the other shows, I'm starting those because I already had traction there. Okay. And so it was, it was easy to get them going and people want to hear about those topics. But ultimately, you know, going, coming back full circle to talking about the podcast and the podcast network, um, my goal is to make sure that there's a podcast about technologies that are relevant to every developer. You know, I want to put content out there that will help every developer raise their game. Okay. And, you know, that, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of shows. That is. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, people need the content. They need to be able to keep up on what's going on. They need to be able to, you know, hone their skills. And, yeah, they have to go do the work on their own after they hear from us about what we're talking about. But um, yeah, if there's not something out there, then, then where do they go? Yeah. So I'm biased because I'm part of an open source company, but I want to hear more about the open source sustainability show that you're thinking about starting. So is that specifically... When you say sustainability, is that specifically about like business models for open source, or what is that referring to? So it is rather general, okay. right? Um, in a lot of ways, it's. Um, I think I think the problem is best described by just saying that um, there's this cycle that people go through with open source software where um, they start doing something interesting, mm -hmm. you know, and usually it's. I think that it'd be fun. To to learn about this, right? And then they build something that a lot of people start using. And so they go from this hobby project to essentially having a thing where people want them to provide them support. Right. They want them to fix the bugs in it. Um, and nobody's paying them for it. Mm -hmm. And so it's this extra part-time or full-time job that they're doing on top of their full-time job that they're already, you know, paying Part the bills of, with. Yeah. And so they burn out or they, you know, they get frustrated or they just don't have time to, you know, properly support it or whatever. Um, and a lot of people don't know, you know, they, they went to school for computer science and nobody taught them how to run a community or do support or things like that. And so we're just going to talk about all of those issues. You know, it's okay. Well, you know, can you put a business model behind it? Well, sure. You know, there are companies that will essentially hire you to work on an open source project that they use. Mm -hmm. um, or there are people out there who have written a library that a lot of people started to use, and so they started adding premium features to it, make, made people pay for licenses to that. Mm. You know, so they, they license the general product for free use, and then they license the premium features, you know, so that you have to pay for an actual license to use it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so there are a lot of different models. So there is the business model aspect, but a lot of times it's just, okay, how do you manage your time with it? How do you manage support with it? How do you manage a Slack group or a, um, you know, some other chat channel for it? Yeah. Um, you know, how do you get people to start using it and do you want to market it? Or are you more just interested in keeping it at the hobby level? Um, the other thing we see is once people get tired of or want to move on from an open source project, how do you um, how do you hand it off to somebody else? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, JavaScript's kind of had a couple of uh, issues. So there was the event stream debacle, I guess I, don't I would call it. I know what that is. I so event stream is a library or a package in JavaScript mm -hmm. that people were installing through NPM, which is the node package manager. So that's how people get, you know, libraries that they can use in their software. 
and the uh, owner of the project um, hadn't been maintaining it. I don't remember exactly the details, but he either hadn't been, been maintaining it or he was tired of maintaining it. So he handed, just handed it off to somebody else, which, you know, if, if I'm working on software for free, mm-hmm. you know, okay, you want to work on it for free now? Go, you know, go ahead, go ahead take it, yeah. right? And so um, whoever took it over eventually installed some security problems into it, right? So I I can't remember if they were like collecting passwords or something, but there was some some issue there where it was a major security breach to have this um, have this library installed. And so, and we did a whole episode on it. I just when you record five or six episodes every week, it's it's hard to keep all the details straight. But anyway, so you see this with the open source, and so it's like, okay, you know, that this is a problem. So can we trust our open source? And we want to. Yeah. We want to trust the software, but ultimately then you have to trust the people behind it that you don't really know. Mm-hmm. And if they hand it off to somebody else and you're not aware, you know, then anyway, so it gets a little bit uh, crazy that way. The other thing is, is that people generally have the right under copyright law in the US to publish or not publish their own code. And so, um, you know, we had an issue with a library called LeftPad and it just added spaces to strings or, you know, which is a series of characters. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's what people, you know, anyway, it's a series of characters, which is, uh, I'm trying to yeah, yeah, explain you. it for our non-technical audience, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, and so it would, LeftPad would, you know, fill in some spaces on the left side of it so that, you know, you could do all kinds of stuff with it. So then it would be space, space, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And so anyway, um, something happened. He became disenfranchised, and so he went and he removed all the packages. Well, a lot of mm. other libraries were dependent on LeftPad to function, and so all of a sudden people were trying to install the packages that they were using for work, and it wouldn't work. And so, um, you know, the, the community basically went and put it back in, the latest yeah. version that he had licensed for free, and they had to do so without his consent, and so that created some discussion around who owns the code and things like that. Yeah. So it gets really interesting because, you know, so I think people, people depend on it, but at the same time, yeah, people yeah. are working on it for free. I think people can understand and relate to why you would want to use code that's open source, because it's free and it's available mm-hmm. and it's useful. But some people might not understand like why anybody would develop an open source project in the first place like what is the incentive behind that so i mean it, it's kind of an interesting yeah it's an interesting discussion because yeah i mean if you're not getting money out of it what are you getting out of it right <laughs> um for some people it's just the thrill of building something really interesting mm-hmm. or building something really interesting that people will use um, i know some people that work on open source so that they can go speak at conferences. I know people that build open source because they deeply believe in a particular idea or cause, and so they'll build open source around it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, so, kind of sounds like podcasting now that I think about it, because it, you're it, often it very like, much doing is. something, giving it away for free, and trying to build a network around yeah. what you've done there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think open source, as far as information as a commodity, Open source has been doing long, doing it longer than podcasting because code is just information. Right. Um, the flip side of that is is that um, the the podcast and things like that 
because they are easier for, I hate to say regular people, but people who aren't programmers to consume. Mm-hmm. Um, I think podcasting will get there first where it becomes commoditized before code does globally. But I, I think we're going to wind up there with code as well in a lot of ways. Um, Interesting. But... Yeah, so, yeah, people are in it for all kinds of different reasons, for rep- reputation, you know, just, just to have something interesting to do, just to give back to the community, you know. Yeah. There are a lot of reasons why people do it. Um, some people get to the point where they actually feel like there's a moral obligation to give back to open source. Um, I, I have varied feelings on that just because um, some people feel like it's an expectation and then... Um, other people, you know, when, when they start profiting on the open source, you know, then some people are okay with that and some people aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is, is that there's a community around it, you know, and that's where I operate with the podcasts. Um, like yeah. you said, it sounds a lot like podcasts because we're creating and so are they, mm-hmm. but we don't get seen in the same light because people aren't consuming the podcast in the same way they're consuming the code. Yeah. And or so, people aren't becoming dependent upon your podcast, right. at least. And so, so there are a lot of mm. interesting dynamics there that, you know, we could probably talk about for hours. But at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is that, um, yeah, you know, people are creating um, valuable information or valuable content for free. Yeah. That people can consume for free. And, uh, yeah, they do that for a lot of reasons. Some companies also do it for different reasons as well. One example is in Salt Lake City, there's a company called Instructure. Mm-hmm. And they, they do uh, learning management systems. So like universities or schools will sign up for it and they'll use it to manage okay. their curriculum. And they went open source because um, Blackboard, who's kind of the big yeah, company the big in the space, right? <laughs> they, you know... Um, they're awful. I remember they, having to use them in college and high school and they're terrible. Oh yeah. Well... They're just as much fun on the other end because I worked in IT when I was attending the university. <laughs> oh, no. And, uh, yeah, maintaining them, you know, they had a team of developers that customized parts of it. And <laughs> it, it was ugly on the other end, too. Oh, but, man. Um, anyway, so Instructure was actually started by people that went to BYU. Okay. Um, but they started the company and they built an alternative to Blackboard. Well, Blackboard owns a bunch of patents that they aggressively enforce against anybody who comes into the space. But they had come out at one point and their CEO had said that they they will enforce the patents against competitors, commercial competitors, but they won't enforce the patents against open source competitors. Interesting. And what so, was the thought process in that? Well, just that it looks better. It looks I bad don't know. if you're like kicking a Kicking somebody who's working on it for free. He's not even earning money, yeah. I don't know. I don't know exactly what that is. But so um, Instructure released an open source version of Canvas, which is their flagship product. And Blackboard hasn't sued them because they have an open source version of, right? Interesting. And so, you know, so people do, do it for commercial reasons. You know, they'll they'll release an open source version hoping that well, people won't want to... Well, I mean, that's commercial wanna... on the one side, but, I mean, how does Instructure make money? People pay them to host Canvas. Universities okay. pay them to, to use Canvas. That's so interesting. So, like, the IP law stuff fascinates me because mm-hmm. I've been getting more familiar with just how 
broad IP laws seem to apply in like the mm -hmm. DMCA to all sorts of bizarre things. Right. And it seems like open source um, is really trying to like kind of buck IP laws. Um, kind of. Like, what are your thoughts about IP laws and what's going to happen in the future if open source and prosumerism and stuff like that grows? So I believe strongly that if you create something, you should be able to profit from it, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. You know, um, open source doesn't really buck that system. It just doesn't fully operate within that system because they don't charge people for it. And but they, like they what? put but they do put con conditions on it in the licenses for open yeah. source. Yeah. Well, okay, so I want to press you on this a bit because I I have the tendency to want to agree with you for like software, like if you've mm -hmm. if you've put in work, you should be able to profit. But then there's other things that we don't traditionally think of as IP, but um, like what if Pythagoras had said, well, the, the Pythagorean theorem is my, the, it's the fruit of my work. So if you want to use this theorem to figure out your geometry when you're building this thing, like you've got to pay me, mm -hmm. there clearly seems to be a problem with that. And I don't know, it's not clear to me. And I think the open source community struggles with this as well, because I think that that's a crowd that tends to be frustrated with intellectual property, not necessarily all of it, but kind of calling into question, where do we draw the line between what you should be able to charge for and what you shouldn't be able to charge for? Mm -hmm. So what are your, where does that become fuzzy for you? So. Well, I guess that's kind of a baked in assumption. Maybe it's not at all fuzzy to you. Maybe Pythagoras should be allowed to charge for his theorem. Well, no, so things like um, Pythagorean theorem, I mean, it's, it's a fact of life, right? Mm -hmm. It's. You know, if you if you draw a right uh, right angle triangle, right, mm -hmm. that will always hold true for the right angle triangle. He didn't invent it; he just figured it out, and so he you know he can't charge for that. Now, if he had a particular method for um, measuring buildings that was based on the Pythagorean theorem, and he you know he invented some tools or some techniques for doing that, then he should be able to profit from that. Does that make sense? I don't know. I think it's still fuzzy. I I've, I like um, the general sense of it, but I think it's not as clear-cut as that. I think there's still really fuzzy areas. So, for instance, like the DMCA, you're, you know, you could argue like, well, this movie exists. Mm -hmm. It is a fact of life. So if somebody... Yeah, but you didn't pay somebody to create it, right? Um, In the case of the Pythagorean theorem. You, you figured out that, you know, Newton created theories around gravity. Well, yeah, but it's not like Google created all the buildings that they went and scanned when they did Google Maps. Yeah, that's fair. So why should they be allowed to hoard that? I guess they're not charging you to look at it. Yeah, but even then... when they sell data, basically their data science, a product of their data science. Well, and that's just a function of how we've written our intellectual property laws. I mean... Technically, and physical property. It's not like physical property, especially land. When we're talking about land, it's not like somebody created that, but we still protect that. And I and yeah. I do think that physical property should have protections. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's inconsistent on my part. But yeah, IP, but somebody did design the building, right? And then they they gave it over to somebody else to build it. <laughs> I mean, look. What I guess what I'm trying to get at is IP tends to be replicable. 
Yes. And it, it tends to be That's like... That's why we protect it. And that seems to me to be a good reason to not protect it. Even though I agree that somebody should get reimbursed for their work somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't have a good answer to that. But it seems dangerous to say, you know, the Pythagorean theorem is information that should not be protected. But, you know, this thing, this other thing that is also just information ought to be protected. Yeah, but the difference is, is that the Pythagorean theorem is, in my view at least, um, a principle of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it always holds true. You know, with, with a movie or something else, I mean, somebody well, any com committed of... an investment to, to create it, right? Yeah. And without them, it wouldn't, it wouldn't exist. So let's, let's look at like, so I'm a researcher. My background uh -huh. is in research. Pythagorean theorem might always hold true. I don't know mathematics well enough to know theoretically if that's mm -hmm. the case. But like when I put a lot of time and energy into researching psychology, that's mm -hmm. my field, um, there's a lot of time and energy and work that goes into it. Right. And what I create is an equation that can help predict behaviors. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't, that equation will almost certainly be replaced later by a better equation. Right. And so that equation is not necessarily a fact of the universe, it's a product of my labor as a researcher. Okay. But I don't know that I should have the rights to hold on to that equation and say, anybody who wants to use this equation needs to pay me. Especially if I'm gonna be, like let's say I was in medicine, I don't mm -hmm. think, I think once somebody has, um, an algorithm for detecting like health behaviors, for instance, that is intellectual property in the sense that somebody slaved over it to get mm -hmm. it made, but it does not seem to me that it would be ethical to actually say, well, if you wanna use this algorithm to figure out, you know, to like run tests and see if this person is likely to have cancer or something like that, I don't think they should be allowed to hold on to that equation and protect it as IP. Does that make sense? I see what you're saying. I, I guess I'm saying it's even fuzzy what's a fact of the universe and what's a product of labor and yeah. what's both. That, that's fair. The, the other thing that we're talking about here though is human behavior and incentives, right? Mm -hmm. So if they couldn't charge people for it. Like why would they bother then, doing it? Yeah, then they wouldn't go to the trouble of researching it in the first place. There's no profit, profit there's, no, there's nothing I get out of it and so I may as well go paint. But maybe that's a reflection of a problem with the way economics and value is tracked and not a problem with what I'm saying. Does that make sense? I know that possibly. sounds crazy, but possibly there's a problem with using a finite currency to try to track IP when IP is definitionally not scarce. Like IP is trying to create scarcity where there's not in yeah. fact scarcity. Yeah, that that's exactly the point is it creates scarcity where, you know, you could copy the knowledge, right? Yeah. It's and it the just same seems like, like there's a problem with an economy that wants to create scarcity. Doesn't that sound backwards just on its surface? It does. But at the same time, I also understand that, I mean, I, I'm... You've got to pay rent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate and, that. And the other thing is, is, I mean, you know, you could look at it the same way with, you know, code, right? Yeah. So the code has a certain amount of value. And, you know, if I write a program that will use the this algorithm or this equation to you know calculate you know the location or likelihood of cancer mm -hmm. 
I mean, that software would save people's lives too. But, you know, unless I'm doing it for motives other than profit, um, I wouldn't create it unless I could make money for it. Does yeah. that make sense? Mm-hmm. And, and it extends into all of these other areas where, you know, again, you know, creating me creating the podcast. Some people have a problem that with me charging for sponsorships on the shows. But they get them for free. Um, what what they, is their reasoning for having a problem with it? Um, it basically boils down to some of the ideas around open source where people, you know, give it away to make the world better and things like that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, um, I'm profiting off of somebody else because JavaScript is open source. Mm-hmm. So is Ruby, right? Th- those are open oh, so they're source saying software. Because you're using open source to make. And I'm talking about open source, which is free. I'm essentially profiting off of somebody else's work. Well, I mean. But the other thing is, is that because missing? people because people get it's a mindset where you know you give certain amounts of things away for free in open source. Yeah. You know that this information should just be free, and the reality is, is that if I weren't making money on it and being able it. to, I wouldn't have time. I yeah. mean, it's it's not it's not a greed issue. It's a I would have to go get a job doing something else issue. Could you clear something up for me? I'm confused by that argument because um, that that others have made about like, well, you're profiting off of open source. I mean, I don't 100 percent understand used. it, but I have okay. had it thrown at me, so okay. I may even or may though, not so be able though, to give you a clear answer on this. Even though the creators of open source have willingly said you can use this however you want, including mm-hmm. in ways that you can profit off of. Right. Doesn't that? I mean, I would have a clean conscience making money off of something that somebody has no, given no, to me I saying agree. I can make money off of. But you know, the feeling is is that, you know, you're you're withholding something from the community yeah. or okay. things like that where it's initially been given away freely. Mm-hmm. But then you're trying to, you know. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever had but, any... But the, the irony on that too is that, so uh, Ruby is MIT licensed. I think Rails is MIT licensed. And then you've got these giant companies like Groupon or Twitter that were initially built on Ruby on Rails that charge people money in some way. Yeah, yeah. And so there's there's an interesting juxtaposition there. I don't know what the right answer is there, okay. and and where that line is. Um, you know, I mean, clearly we, and and a lot of times it's kind of a moral judgment that people are making that is based on you know whatever world they're living in mm-hmm. or how they perceive the world. And so because open source software is essentially free, they feel like a lot of the stuff that's related to it should be free. Yeah. You know, so coming back to. Um, you know, things like Pythagorean theorem, I can measure the sides of the triangle and I can tell you that that, you know, mm-hmm. that that, I, I could figure it out on my own, but, you know, the the explanation of it and, um, you know, Pythagoras actually proving it, like his his written explanation of it is copyrighted, right? Or would be under would U.S. Been. laws. It would have been. Uh, you know, so you talking about, you know, yeah. working on doing research, yeah. um, you know, you own the copyright to the you know the the papers and well (laughs) that's a whole that's a whole really heated thing in the academic world and because journals you know in order to get your work published right the way you do it is you grant your copyrights to them and they protect it and people have been getting really ticked off particularly by um research that's being pumped out by state schools because Mm -hmm. it's publicly funded research that then is getting published behind a paywall that's usually about like 70 bucks per article Mm -hmm. so that's clearly a problem but that could kind of unravel like these these journals that are closed access is what they're called Mm -hmm. um 
these closed access journals are um, the most prestigious ones. Right. And so they tend to have higher impact. And I mean, this is a whole mm -hmm. nother long conversation, but I think that we're going to see a lot of things in academics change because mm -hmm. of problems like that that right. are, people are trying to get upset about. Well, and what you're talking about is very similar to the conversation we're having about open source, right? Yeah. Where it's essentially developed by people for free in the community, mm -hmm. and then, yeah, you know, you go create content yeah. that, that has a paid component to it. Right. And, you you know, the equivalent of sponsors in our world is um, are, are like grant makers. Right. And, I mean, to some degree, the institution you're at, too, because... You don't want to be stuck in a work environment where you publish research that ticks a bunch of people off mm -hmm. um, on a social level. Like ideally, in ideally in a scientific world, it wouldn't matter. Unfortunately, it, yeah. research is biased. Ideally, that's that's true, right? And, you, you just want the truth, whatever it looks like. Right, right. And even, so, even if it's unpopular or yeah. makes people unhappy, it's yeah. the truth. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so if you go and you get research that's funded by like the Koch Foundation, the Charles Koch Foundation, mm -hmm. some people are automatically going to be skeptical of right. anything published in that piece of work. Um, which brings me back to... I wouldn't to, say that that's 100% unreasonable, though. Oh, I don't, I don't think it is either. And actually, I'm working on publishing a paper that kind of talks mm -hmm. about some of these issues, not, not on a funding side, but just mm -hmm. about how researcher bias mm -hmm. in I, I want to clarify studies. something real quick. That's not a value judgment on Charles Koch. It's a value judgment on where did the funding come from, right? Oh, yeah. And, and what, what are their incentives? Yeah, absolutely. Just it's a recognition that science is not objective in the ways that people tend right. to take for granted. Well, that's because it's done by people. Right. People, people, <laughs> people. Yes. Um, but anyway, so I wanted to take this back to open source because with people being a bit upset about... Um, most people are okay with it. I Most people are fine them, with right? it, I'm sure. Okay, yeah. so of the some that are bothered by the sponsorships, like one potential thing I could see people not liking is, okay, well, do these sponsors dictate anything that's said um, or influence even the whole topic of the show in right. a way that wouldn't, like, do they intervene in some way? And what's sort of your take on that? Have you ever felt pressure from a sponsor to say or not say certain things? Um, yes. You have felt pressure. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty straight with them. I'm just like, look, we're going to have the conversation that we're going to have, mm -hmm. right? Um, have you ever lost a sponsor over? No. That's good. Uh, the only one that explicitly came to me and said, we want you to say this, mm -hmm. um, and, and it's a reasonable request, I will add, mm -hmm. is that um, one of the sponsors, so they teach people how to build Angular apps. Mm -hmm. And we've done some episodes where we've talked about Angular, um, learning how to do such and such a thing in Angular. Mm -hmm. And what they asked me was um, basically to make sure that we're saying, oh, you know, Angular Bootcamp covers that in their bootcamp. Okay. Right? Yeah. And so it doesn't, I don't feel like that really detracts from the conversation at all. Mm -hmm. But they're sponsoring the show and they just want a little extra exposure. Yeah. Right? That's the closest I've come. Um, I've, I've really not had any sponsors have any issues. The other thing is, is that in the podcasting world, especially with these sponsors, mm -hmm. most of them don't listen to the show. Mm. And so if we said something that, you know, they didn't like politically one way or the other, and yes, I have brought up politics on the show and it has been unpopular with a certain segment of the listenership. Yeah. Um, and so I tend to shy away from it a little bit, mm -hmm. though some of my other co-hosts are a little bit more in your face about some of their political stances mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to get into arguments on the show so I don't 
Yeah. But because um, it's a show about tech, it's not a show about politics, and it's just not worth having a twenty-minute segment where we're, you know, yeah, talking about the merits or, um, you know, whatever of of what Trump or Clinton or somebody else did. Yeah. But yeah, it. I've never had anybody, you know, stop sponsoring the show because they didn't like a particular thing that we talked about or something like that. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, you're having a balance interest on both sides, the people who are actually paying for you to be able to produce the content and then yeah. the people who either like or don't like your content in yeah. the first place. But most of the sponsors, they just want to get enough people listening mm -hmm. to be interested to go check them out. Mm-hmm. And so if we were talking about if we were talking about dog food and we had developers as listeners, they would mm -hmm. still sponsor the show, if that makes sense. Do you get any sense for like how many of your user listeners, if any, actually like the sponsorships? Um, That's really hard to know. And I will tell you that the um, like podcasting numbers are horrendous, right? I mean, I've done... What do you mean? Like, hard to tell how many listeners you have, or...? So, th there's a there's kind of a... It's not really a debate, but... Um, and we, we could go into the whole discussion about, like, incumbent um, companies and incumbent uh, solutions. But, uh, so the two big companies out there in podcast statistics are Libsyn and Blueberry. Okay. Okay. And so they got together with the National Association of Broadcasters, you know, who basically represent uh, traditional media, okay. right? And they came up with a way of measuring podcast downloads, hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so they have their own standard for that. Of course, they and maybe one or two other folks actually use the standard, but mm -hmm. they're trying to make the standard a thing. And the reason is, is because, yeah, measuring a download is the Wild West on the internet. You know, how do you measure it? Do you measure it by the number of times that um, somebody hits the link to download the resource? Mm -hmm. There are some download managers that will say, um, they'll go do a request and they'll say, how big's the file? And if it's five megabytes, then they'll send five requests. Send me the first megabyte, send me the second megabyte, send me the third megabyte. And so some download counting will count all five of those requests and some of them will go those are five requests from the same hmm. source and so okay. it'll count as one but then you also get into the world where like for your internet connection you probably have your own IP address mm -hmm. you know which identifies you as you right? right or your house so I can I can at least say everything from this IP address is unique right well what if I'm at the university or Right. Um, things like that where they have one IP address for the entire organization or at a big company, right? Mm -hmm. And so then I go download the episode of the podcast, but then somebody else goes and downloads the episode from the podcast. Technically, that's two downloads, but they came from the same IP address. So now I have to figure out, is it the same device? And so it, it just gets really super messy. And mm -hmm. so they've come up with all these different ways of determining whether or not it's the same download. Um, part of the problem there too, though, is that um, for myself and a lot of other people, we host our files in one place and then we have the download counting happening in another place. So, okay. for example, all of my files are on a uh, content delivery network called Cashfly. And content delivery network is just a fancy way of saying that uh, you put all of your stuff on there and then they deliver it fast, okay. <laughs> right? 
Um, I could go into all the technicalities of that, but that's essentially what they do is they're there to deliver okay. content quickly. Um, and so all my stuff's on Cashfly, but it gets counted through Blueberry. Mm-hmm. And so um, in the in the standard that they came up with, um, they want you to check the server logs on where you're hosting and make sure that the whole file got downloaded before you count it as a download. Mm. Well, since I've got these two systems, I can't know that the whole file got downloaded. And so they kind of have to fudge okay. and do their best. Um, and so, yeah, the, but that's the best stat you have. Yeah. Um, I think the NPR One app will tell you how far into it people listened. But none of the other podcasting apps do, including Apple's. Yeah. And so it's th- yeah, there, there aren't great um, numbers around a lot of this stuff. That's interesting. That's like one of those things you think would be solved by now, like a basic thing you'd want to know. And if podcasting- well, it's something you'd want to know. But there, I mean, again, we're we're back to another conversation about profit motive, right? Are there enough yeah. people that will pay for the other stats? Well, and, I think and the that answer is is not generally. People don't generally want to pay for viewership stats. Well, what would they do with them? Well, if the world is going towards a direction of media consumption and oh, I think eventually it'll get to the point where people will pay for it, but yeah, yeah, not now. Wow. Well, that seems like an obvious hole in future needs. Pod wrench. Pod wrench. Let's make it happen. I'm working on that. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me, Chuck. Do you want to give like one or two minutes to just talk about um, like your last message, what you're passionate about, any last thoughts you want to leave us with? So, I mean, the things that I'm passionate about are programming and podcasting okay. um, and just generally making sure that people have what they need in order to succeed. Um, so... You know, we had a conversation the other day about, you know, some idea that I had about, like, rural programming training and things like that. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's the same. I'm doing the same thing for podcasting, essentially. is just I just want to open the doors and make sure that people have the content they need. Um, and I want to make money while I do it. There you go. <laughs> and so um, it's, it's, it's really interesting to kind of be in a position um, and to have worked... Um, works so that I get myself into a position where I can actually make that kind of a difference and then have people continue to support that effort either you know by paying me to help them do it or um, you know setting things up in such a way to where you know it works out and so um, it's been a ton of work yeah it's you know I've I've gone through some stuff we've we've talked about that over the last few days Um, but yeah I mean it's it's just going to get easier and the other thing is, is that um, as you, if you get in now on a lot of this stuff, and, and this is something that I think is actionable for anybody who's watching or listening, is if you get in now, if you start recognizing the, the real um, opportunities that exist before it becomes super easy and you start taking advantage of that, then you can really, A, start serving a community you care about or a cause that you care about. But the other thing is, is then then you're setting yourself up for, you know, like I did eight years ago starting the podcasts, you know, I, I'm i successful now, and, you know, I think, I think that's going to continue to accelerate. So um, in a lot of ways, if you start doing the things that I was doing eight years ago, you can probably do it in four or six years as things continue to speed up and, you know, things go more mainstream. 
the the issue is is that you're also then getting to a place where you have to compete with more people in order mm -hmm. to you know in order to get there but yeah i mean you know going back to that passion um i just want to help people get there i i, I want to move these things forward um i mean i'm i'm building a podcasting booth that i can take to conferences so that i can get the word out about podcasting um you know i get on the phone with people who want to start a podcast and just help them out for free um and and then that's the kind of thing you know it's it's the stuff that you're doing that doesn't make sense that i think determine what your passions are and that's where i'm spending my time you know i give a lot of people programming career advice um, i talk to people about all kinds of things related to the stuff that i know about and you know and and that's where my passion is is just yeah just kind of helping people get over whatever that hurdle is that they just can't quite clear on their own and and make it so that they can create whatever it is in life or in the world that they want awesome all right charles max wood if you are interested in starting a podcast this is the man to talk to <laughs> thank you chuck thanks